welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, the California gubernatorial election. Some say the outcome will determine whether California shifts the Trump-style policies and politics or maintains the progressive reputation it now has. There is a lot at stake. Our guest is Bill Gallegos, Chicano liberation and environmental justice activist. And the impact of Hurricane Ida on St. John the Baptist Parish in Louisiana. We speak with Robert Taylor, founder of Concerned Citizens of St. John. Also, we update our rural-urban conversation with a focus on the Mojave Desert communities. Our guest is Pat Flanagan, a naturalist educator based in 29 Palms in the high desert of California. We discuss the threats to the desert ecological system and how that impacts us all. We pay tribute to actor Michael K. Williams and also our weekly Earth Minute. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandiri. COVID-19 cases among children are soaring. That's according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. The group says more than a quarter of a million cases among children were added in the last week. That's the largest number of weekly cases among kids since the pandemic began. There were more than three quarters of a million new pediatric cases in the period between August 5th and September 2nd. The pediatrician's group says it appears that severe illness due to COVID-19 is uncommon among children. They make up a tiny percentage of the country's COVID-19 deaths. However, the Academy says there's an urgent need to collect more data on longer-term impacts of the pandemic on children, including long-term physical health effects as well as emotional and mental health effects. The U.S. has surpassed another grim milestone, more than 650,000 recorded deaths from COVID-19. The actual number is believed to be higher. Not all deaths from the coronavirus have been recorded as such. Idaho public health leaders are letting the state's northern hospitals ration health care because there are more coronavirus patients than the institutions can handle. The Idaho Department of Health and Welfare made the announcement and warned residents they may not get all the care they need because of severe shortages of staffing and hospital beds caused by a massive increase of COVID-19 patients needing hospitalizations. The crisis standards of care are for 10 hospitals and health care systems in Idaho's Panhandle and North Central Idaho. The move allows hospitals to allocate scarce resources like intensive care unit rooms to the patients most likely to survive. Dr. Robert Scoggins is chief of staff at the largest hospital in northern Idaho. He says because of the crushing load of COVID patients inside the ICU, one critical care nurse might be supervising up to six patients with the help of two other non-critical care nurses. He says it's not ideal care. Scoggins also talked about seeing young patients dying, 
many of whom had no pre-existing conditions. I think that the thing that's really uh, changed for us has been seeing that younger patients are dying from this. And uh, it's uh, quite disturbing to see uh, these patients declining in their, what I would consider healthy. They're normal, everyday North Idaho people. Idaho's director of the Department of Health and Welfare said 92% of those hospitalized with COVID-19 are unvaccinated. The state's Republican governor has encouraged people to get vaccinated and wear a mask, but has refused to issue any mandates. Less than 40% of the state's population is fully vaccinated, far below the national average of 53.8%. A war crew in Virginia has removed what was one of the nation's largest remaining monuments to the Confederacy. The towering statue of General Robert E. Lee was removed from its pedestal in Richmond, Virginia. It came down 131 years after it was erected in the former capital of the Confederacy. Virginia Democratic Governor Ralph Northam was on the scene to watch the 21-foot bronze equestrian sculpture come down. It sat atop a pedestal nearly twice that tall. The Taliban has announced an all-male interim government for Afghanistan stacked with veterans of their rule from the 1990s and the 20-year battle against the U.S.-led coalition. Appointed to the key post of Interior Minister Sirajuddin Haqqani, he is on the FBI's most wanted list with a $5 million bounty on his head. The announcement of the interim government came hours after the Taliban fired guns into the air to disperse protesters in the capital, Kabul, and arrested and beat several journalists. It was the second time in less than a week that heavy-handed tactics were used to break up a protest. Taliban spokesman Sabihullah Mujahid defended the Taliban action. His remarks appeared on Al Jazeera. We have to understand that these days we have come out from an emergency situation and the atmosphere is not the right one and suitable for demonstrations. The State Department expressed concern that the cabinet included only Taliban leaders, no women, and personalities with a troubling track record, but said the new administration would be judged by its actions. A powerful earthquake struck in southern Mexico near the Pacific Resort city of Acapulco, causing buildings to rock and sway in Mexico City more than 200 miles away. At least one death was reported. The U.S. Geological Survey said last night's magnitude 7 quake was centered northeast of Acapulco. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Right at the top of the hour, we are going to remember the actor Michael K. Williams, who has died. We are going to go to a clip as people from his old neighborhood remember him as he never forgot them. This, as accolades and sorrow over his passing, continues to pour in. Let's go to that clip right now. Tributes continue tonight for the TV star who never forgot where he came from and always gave back to his Brooklyn community. Actor Michael K. Williams's life was cut short when he was found dead in his Williamsburg apartment yesterday. Tonight, New York City came together to remember his lasting impact. CBS 2's Corey James reports. And he comes from East Flatbush. On the streets of Brooklyn, the original Vanderveer Estates. Music was played. 
and prayers were shared. Eternal God and our Father. Honoring the late Michael K. Williams. The philanthropist. Williams, a five-time Emmy Award nominee, died Monday at his apartment in Williamsburg. It was a man who stayed close to his roots, always returning to his childhood community to give back. He just showed up and be part of the neighborhood. But outside his activism, the world knew him as an electric presence on the big screen. A man got to have a cold. Playing on hit shows The Wire and Boardwalk Empire. Two years ago, he spoke to CBS News about his accomplishments garnering support from fans and politicians, specifically President Obama. You know, because up until that point, you know, I was a grown man on television who thought my voice didn't matter. A voice that touched those participating in this SAG after roundtable last October, as Williams reflected on the impact of playing Montrose Freeman in Lovecraft Country, a character who was a father, alcoholic, and sexually conflicted. Thank God I had the cast and these, these, these amazing angels around me to hold me up. But back in the city that Williams never left, people are showing their support for him, releasing balloons and remembering the legacy he left behind. Say Michael K. Williams. We love you, Mike. We love you, Mike. And hundreds of people attended that visual there. Right now, though, we are still waiting on the medical examiner's report from the autopsy to know the official cause of death. Family members tell me funeral arrangements for Williams so far have not been finalized. In the studio, Corey James, CBS 2 News. Beloved actor Michael J. Williams, many say he is the finest or was the finest actor of his day. In the tradition of Sojourner Truth, we join his uh, members of his family, his mom who ail hails from the Caribbean uh, region, and also for his uh, family in his work, uh, those who work with him on Lovecraft, um, country where he has been nominated actually for an award for his role there and also his uh, role in so many other um, notable um, television and movie roles, including The Wire. We are going to play in the memory of uh, Michael K. Williams, The Morning Song. Michael K. Williams. This is Margaret Prescott, <clears throat> a little horse of uh, Sojourner Truth. And uh, we are now going to turn our attention to the California governor 
recall election, one of the most important elections, some say, in the history of California and a key one in the nation as a whole, is set to take place in just a few days. On Tuesday, September 14th, a recall election will take place in the state of California, where voters will decide whether to recall Governor Gavin Newsom from office. If he is removed, voters will uh, elect a candidate to replace him for the remainder of his term, which ends in January of 2023. The future of California, and some say an indication of the direction of where the country is headed, is at stake, as many see this as a test for next year's 2022 midterm elections. Many in the Republican Party are already using this as an opportunity to reintroduce Donald Trump-style policies and politicians that are seen by many as, well, dangerous. Newsom's main opponent is a right-wing black radio host and attorney named Larry Elder. He grew up in South Los Angeles, and he is an ardent supporter of Donald Trump, frequently praising him on Twitter and touting his policies. And indeed, some in the Black Lives Matter movement are saying that he embodies white supremacism, which, given that he is a black man, is something that people are wrapping their heads around. He has spoken out against many of Newsom's progressive policies that benefit immigrants, communities of color, impoverished people, and those who are vulnerable to COVID-19. Larry Elder has also been vocal about recalling Newsom. The campaign to recall Newsom, however, it has lost some momentum in the last month, um, where it now say there's an over 85% chance that the effort fails. This according to NBC News, also a poll conducted by the Public Policy Institute of California found that 58% of the state's voters wanted Newsom to stay. Well, a lot of people have continued to be very nervous because the polls, at least in the national level, in the last two presidential uh, elections turned out to be wrong. Also, um, Gavin Newsom faces challenges with bringing Latino voters to the polls. While Latinos make up almost 30% of the California electorate, only 17% of the ballots cast thus far are by Latino voters. This also according to NBC News. Let us go to a clip now from CBS about this recall election. The final campaign push is underway in California's recall election. 45 candidates are looking to unseat Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. Only one California governor has been ousted in a recall effort. Millions of voters have already taken advantage of early voting and cast their ballots. For more, I want to bring in Alexi Kosov. Alexi is a state capital reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Alexi, welcome. First, let's talk about the latest polling. Where does this race stand now? So, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, a race that once looked like it might be very close seems to be settling back into the sort of partisan divide that we might expect in California. Uh, the most recent poll last week from the Public Policy Institute of California showed that um, Gavin Newsom was up about 19 points, which would be about in line with his, uh, his victory in 2018. And that would be a, a big turnaround from earlier this summer when it seemed like 
things were very, very close in, in terms of the yes and no uh, side on, among likely voters. Well, President Biden and Vice President Harris are expected to campaign for Governor Newsom in the coming days. How might their support help the governor in this fight for his political future? Well, Kamala Harris, the vice president, is a California native and a longtime political ally of, of Governor Newsom's. And uh, President Biden also remains fairly popular here. So having them come out here as um, as President Biden has promised to do and as Vice President Harris is expected to do tomorrow um, is, is really a show of both support to Newsom and also a reminder to Democratic voters that, hey, we've got Governor Newsom's back. If you like us, you should like him to vote no on the recall, keep him in office, keep that Democratic agenda going and really just remind them to get their ballots in. Okay, so county officials, they have sent an official ballot to every registered voter's mailing address for the option to vote by mail on or before election day, while polling places will be open statewide on election day for the option to vote in person. The recall ballot in California is comprised of two essential portions. One, whether the incumbent should be recalled, and two, a selection of replacement candidates in the event that they are recalled. If a simple majority of those who cast ballots favors removing uh, Gavin Newsom by selecting yes on the first question, then the replacement candidate who receives the most votes finishes out the incumbent's uh, term in office and a voter of course is allowed a single unranked vote when choosing a preferred replacement candidate so for our listeners in california uh your ballots are already there you could uh, send them in by mail or obviously you can vote on tuesday september the 14th i'd now like to welcome our guests to discuss all of this bill gallegos longtime chicano liberation and environmental justice Activist. He is the author of the Sunbelt Strategy and Chicano Liberation and Reflections on the Green Economy. He is also the former executive director of Communities for a Better Environment, one of the leading environmental justice organizations in the U.S. And he has authored recently um, an article entitled Ethnic Cleansing, a Program of Resistance. Bill Gallegos, welcome back. Thank you so much, Margaret. Bill Gallegos, first of all, Tribute to Michael K. Williams, and as we would say, Michael K. Williams presente. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of people really in in shock. Um, a, a great loss. He indeed was a very great talent. Um, now, Bill, on this uh, recall election, your thoughts on the significance of it uh, for California as well as for the nation? Well, thank you, Margaret. Yes, it's. Um, I think it's the uh, the right wing, what I would call a new confederacy, uh, a pretty much political embodiment of white supremacy and patriarchy, uh, have taken control of the Republican Party. And in California, especially uh, oppressed communities of color have overwhelmingly rejected their politics and their policies, and um, they can't they can't win. A statewide election for dog catchers. They just uh, 
They're just, they don't have that kind of support of the California new majority. So they're resorting to the recall. And the recall is, in this case, an extremely reactionary effort uh, to overturn the will of the electorate. And that electorate was uh, primarily people of color. Uh, they were responsible for the overwhelming election of Gavin Newsom and for the election of President Biden. Um, and uh, the Republican Party, whose policies on immigration, on labor, on women's productive rights and women's rights in general, on voting rights, on climate change, have been extremely backward and reactionary, cannot win those policies uh, by putting them before the electorate. So they're using the recall as a means to try to subvert the will of the majority. And I think it's extremely important for all communities, but I'm speaking here, out, uh, reaching out to the Latino community, to, to overwhelmingly reject this recall. I think it needs to be crushed, not just defeated, but crushed as a, as a message, both to the Republican right here in California, as well as nationally. Uh, Bill Gallegos, I mean, if you look at some of the policies, the achievements, one could say of, of Gavin Newsom, we know that there are some who say, well, you know, he's he's a wealthy guy, he's, he's out of touch, and you are right, there is concern about turnout among uh, Latino voters, at least if you're looking at the mail-in um, ballots thus far, according to the New York Times, 18% of all registered Latino voters have mailed in their ballots. But if you contrast that with the amount of white voters who've mailed in their ballots, that's 32%. So we'll see how all of that plays out. But Newsom, he's done things like, um, for now anyway, ending uh, the death penalty, for now putting new limits on police use of force, uh, moving forward with two uh, prison closures. He jumped out very early in terms of how California's response uh, to COVID. He's pushed the largest economic stimulus ever expanded signature um, anti-poverty uh, program, the California Earned Income Tax Credit, support the gig worker law, and much more. So given all of that, um, Bill, your thoughts on really how we got to this point and what could happen, I mean, potentially, if in fact um, Newsom is recalled, including on, on the environment, I mean, Elder, his, his main opponent, just about stands for to oppose everything likely that you and I would support, Bill Gallegos. Well, that's absolutely correct, Margaret. So um, uh, and as, as your listeners may know, that Elder could get elected with less than 20% of the vote. So the, uh, the recall could win by one vote. Uh, that would mean that, uh, you know, almost 50 percent of the electorate opposed it, but he could become governor with less than 20 percent of the vote. And right now he's the top candidate for those should the recall uh, be successful. So it's extremely dangerous. And um, he's pretty much in line with the policies of President Trump on the climate, saying, uh, let's give a green light to all fossil fuel extraction, drilling, mining, uh, natural gas, um, uh, industrial, agricultural, um, all of the kinds of policies that have uh, expressed themselves now in the wildfires, in the hurricanes, and all the climate catastrophes that are happening 
in this country and throughout the world, especially in poor black and brown communities where their, their toll is the most significant. So this would be a huge step backward in terms of climate policies. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about what this recall represents in terms of an opening for uh, oppressed communities, because our votes will be uh, decisive in this, not only for our victory, but for an overwhelming defeat of this recall initiative. And what that gives our communities potentially is leverage, because as you pointed out, there's been many, many uh, important positive policies adopted by the Newsom administration, but there's a long way to go. We have not yet achieved environmental justice or educational justice or Medicare for all. A number of the things that our communities, black, brown, and Asian and indigenous communities have shown significant support for those kinds of policies. And we need to be thinking about how we use our votes, not only to defeat the recall, but for the leverage we need to really promote a progressive agenda, not just with Governor Newsom, because he's going to owe us, but for the state legislature. So I think that's what we need to be giving our thoughts to, is that we can't just look at it as a mobilization of the vote for this election, but how in an organized way we use that power to advance a progressive agenda. As you know, Latinos had significant support for Bernie Sanders in the presidential primary. And that wasn't just because we loved Theo Bernie. It was because of the policies that he represented in terms of environmental justice, educational justice, immigration rights, and so on. So that should be our agenda now. And we should see this recall as not only an opportunity to uh, administer a resounding political defeat to the Republican right, the new, uh, the new Confederacy, but to really advance the agenda that is so important to our communities. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right there. And if you look at uh, some of the policies of um, Elder, I mean, first of all, there is increasingly the electorate has to be sophisticated. Uh, simply because you can't look at Larry Elder and say, well, he's a black guy. He, he came out of South L.A. Uh, so, you know, therefore, you know, maybe he's somebody that uh, people of color should support. But the idea that uh, people in the Black Lives Matter movement and others are now calling him an embodiment of white supremacy is, I think, is an important because so far, you know, people could get kind of stuck in a sort of a, a narrow nationalism or assuming that because someone is like my color, I'm of African descent, that means they have to be on the side of black people. No, that is not uh, necessarily the case. Wanted your thoughts on that, but also the given what's going on now in Texas and in other places, the threat to um, women's uh, reproductive freedom. Contrast that with what is now happening in Mexico, in Mexico, on that same front, and you have somebody like Elder who very much is in the corner of what happened in Texas, but also the just incredible uh, voter suppression measures just signed into law. Uh, by the gov Governor Abbott in Texas and has been spreading like a cane fire across the country. So this is really dangerous because a lot of people, Bill, you might remember, who thought, well, no, we, we can't hold our nose and vote for Hillary Clinton. We got Donald Trump 
and look at what has happened. And there is a very real possibility that if voters sit on their hands and say, well, we're not crazy about Newsom and then just let it go, we could pay a heavy price in California and across the nation. Bill Gallegos. Oh, absolutely, Margaret. So just in the area of appointments, if Elder was takes office, he decides who gets to run the Air Resources Board. He gets to decide who runs the agencies that are responsible. Just in, I'm just talking about that arena for environmental policies. And we will have a huge step backwards. He loves fracking. He loves fossil fuel extraction. He loves fossil fuel, the uh, natural gas. So we, we would, it would be a huge, huge setback. But, but you're right, the Republican Party, I think they're, they're talking about running uh, African-American Herschel Walker in Georgia. Uh, there, there's the cynicism of this party is just uh, it's at, at record levels, and, but I think our communities are really um, much more politically sophisticated than they're they're given credit for. They're, they're, they actually consider policies. They actually consider the impact of what their voting is going to mean. So the fact that that Larry Elder is black is not going to be, I think, significant in terms of the black community, the brown community, or the Asian Pacific Islander community. And I know that the, the media has been playing up a lot about, you know, the support he might be getting from some Southeast Asian voters in Orange County. But overwhelmingly, the Asian Pacific Island voters are progressive. And those voters in Chinatown and San Francisco and Los Angeles, those Filipino voters who are cleaning bedpans and helping to care for our elders, they're not going to vote for this fool. And I don't care how many people like uh, Gloria Romero that Larry Elder uh, trots out to convince us that he supports the Latino community. Folks are not going to be fooled. Folks are not going to be fooled. They know that Gloria Romero is in favor of privatizing education, expanding charter schools, opposing unions and labor rights. That's where our folks are. We are workers. We are the heart of the union movement here in, in California. So people are not going to be taken in. I don't worry about that so much. I, there is a concern that people might sit it out, but I, th I don't think that's going to happen. I think people are going to turn out pretty significantly. Well, let's uh, hope that indeed is the case. And, you know, actually, you know, we're not allowed to endorse candidates uh, on uh, Pacifica. We are nonprofit, so I'm not endorsing a candidate. I'm bringing information about the recall uh, election and a bit about this Lawrence Allen Elder, who is a black conservative talk radio host. Um, he is a conservative. He is right-wing um, and proud of it. He's a registered Republican. And in 2021, he stated that he had voted for the Republican candidate in every presidential election since uh, 1980, um, an ardent supporter of uh, Donald Trump. So this is who we are uh, dealing with. I mean, Elder, um, Bill, just before you get, we get your final thoughts, um, he spoke about Donald Trump as being God sent and that his presidency is a miracle. And now he's going around supporting the big lie, claiming that um, Biden, uh, President Biden really did not win 
the last election. But just your final thoughts to people who may be listening right now and who may very well be thinking, well, this isn't really important and, well, Newsom will likely pull it out, so I don't have to organize the time uh, to go out and vote, so I'm going to sit it out. Your final thoughts, Bill Gallegos. Well, thank you, Margaret. And um, I, I think that the, there's no unimportant election for us anymore. Uh, whether it's school board, whether it's city council, whether it's legislative, whether it's the recall, they're all important. They all have an impact on us, and they are an arena in which we can exert our power. So we exert our power in the streets. We exert our power through union organizing. We exert our power in many ways. But this is one important arena that has huge impacts on our community. So we can't sit it out. And we should be uh, aware of the tactics that the Republican right is using to reach out to communities of color, to promote people like Larry Elder as supposedly representing the voice of the black community, when that's absolutely untrue. None of the policies that he's aligned with are at all supported by anywhere near a majority in the black community. So I think we just need to see beyond that but we need to really understand the cynicism of this tactic, just like they tried to use the tactic in the past of playing off black people against brown people. We have to be aware and get and really stand up against these kinds of policies and these kinds of tactics. And the recall election gives us an, an opportunity to really demonstrate our power and to really uh, see that as part of building our strength for the long-term progressive agenda that our communities overwhelmingly embrace. Right, Bill Gallegos, we are going to have to leave it there, but thank you so very much for yet again joining us. We appreciate you, thank Bill. Thank you, Margaret. And if you ever consider running, well, I'll be there. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. All righty, but thanks for that. Okay, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. What we're going to do now, we're going to take our station break. Coming up, our weekly Earth Minute and also the Hurricane Ida. We're going to continue our coverage, in particular, the impact on black communities um, in Louisiana, uh, impacted communities, as well as desert conservation. Stay with us. We'll be right back. the great Renan Giddens, and that is Avalon. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. You can check out our website at sotrueradio.org, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. We're nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners across of the state of Louisiana. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners on the west coast of the continent of Africa. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're now going to go to our weekly Earth Minute. 
In a statement released today by the Campaign to Stop GE Trees, numerous environmental groups from around the globe are warning of the ecological and social dangers of using genetically engineered trees in false solution climate mitigation schemes. As the devastating effects of climate change become more immediate and severe, corporate interests are promoting unproven and potentially dangerous GE trees for climate mitigation schemes, including carbon offsetting and a so-called bioeconomy designed to maintain business as usual. The statement warned that researchers are trying to transform the very composition of wood itself to pursue these fake climate schemes, and that large-scale use of GE trees could devastate forests, biodiversity, and forest-dependent communities, and could even worsen climate. Rather than transforming our forest into lab-generated, genetically-engineered facsimiles, we need to mitigate climate change by addressing CO2 emissions at the source and by working toward real and just solutions. The statement may be seen at stopgetrees.org backslash getrees hyphen statement. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Steve Taylor the Global Justice Ecology Project. All righty, and this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now, we all recall that on August 29, 2021, Hurricane Ida made landfall in Louisiana, bringing death, destruction, and displacement to the region. Hurricane Ida was a Category 4 hurricane that became the second most damaging and intense hurricane to strike uh, the U.S. state of Louisiana on record, this behind Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And indeed, Hurricane Ida hit on the exact anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, Ida also caused catastrophic uh, flooding across the northeastern the United States. As of September 7th, a local uh, total of 97 deaths have been confirmed in relation to Ida, including 20 in Louisiana, according to CNN. Now, uh, President Biden and others, environmentalists, are making the connection with Ida's destruction and climate uh, change. Uh, let us go now to a clip from CNN exactly on this, the climate crisis and extreme weather. From coast to coast, people are fleeing flames, wind that strutter. They're very dangerous conditions, and um, in 22 years of doing this, I've never seen fire conditions like we're seeing now. The Calder Fire has forced tens of thousands of people in the South Lake Tahoe area to evacuate. It's the 15th largest wildfire in California history, and out of the largest 20 California fires, 11 of them happened in the last five years. Up the coast, the Pacific Northwest saw a record-breaking heat wave earlier in the summer. The Red Cross traditionally doesn't support cooling centers, but this is unfortunately our new normal. This is the first time it was 116 degrees. It won't be the last time. In the south, people are displaced from Hurricane Ida, which arrived on the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And in the northeast... We are in a whole new world now. Let's be blunt about it. The remnants of Ida brought flash flooding and tornadoes to areas that rarely saw these events in the past. The records that were broken in Central Park, for example, 3.15 inches in one hour. It broke a record literally set one week earlier. That says to me that there are more, no more cataclysmic, unforeseeable events. In August, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said it is, quote, unequivocal that humans have caused the climate crisis. 
The report confirms that widespread and rapid changes have already happened, some of them irreversibly. A lead author of that report, Kim Cobb, explains how the Earth has warmed more than one degree Celsius since pre-industrial levels. We, of course, known for decades that rise in fossil fuel emissions are driving warming across the planet. This warming is related to the heating of the atmosphere that has caused a 7% increase in the amount of water vapor that the atmosphere can hold. More water vapor leads to higher humidity. In some areas, more drought. We've had drought cycles, but this is the first time we've ever seen a mega drought where it's year after year. And in other areas, a potential for more rainfall and more frequent heavy rainstorms. With oceans retaining more heat, hurricanes can get stronger, slower, and wetter. And Ida was a prime example of those changes. With every fraction of a degree of warming, the effects get worse. If we think this is bad, we have to get ready for the climate of the next decades when we know we have a couple tenths of a degree warming more. In the UN report's most optimistic scenario, the world's emissions need to drop sharply, beginning now, to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Even then, we'll peak above a dangerous warming threshold before falling again. All righty, and that certainly uh, sets the context for our discussion. And um, in, back in Louisiana, St. John the Baptist Parish received some of the heaviest rainfall of any other uh, parish in Louisiana due to Hurricane Ida, causing unprecedented flooding and requiring intense search and rescue efforts following the storm. An estimated 80% of all the search and rescue efforts conducted this past Monday were in that parish, this according to Governor John Bell uh, Edwards. Uh, let's dig into uh, some of this and find out what is going on in this predominantly black community in uh, uh, polluted areas known as Cancer Alley. I'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Robert Taylor, who is the founder of Concerned Citizens of St. John. The mission of the organization is to ensure the health and safety of all citizens while holding to hold government officials and industry accountable for air pollution. Robert Taylor, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Margaret. Well, happy to be here. Okay, and we're glad that um, you and your family are safe. You were evacuated for a while, and are you still evacuated, or are you back now? I returned home last night. Yes, I did. I left the Friday before the event, and uh, I was in uh, Beaumont, Texas with some friends, and we returned home uh, yesterday to find our home devastated. You know, it. it destroyed our house, but it destroyed the, uh, this community is going to be hard pressed in recovering the, the tragic scenes that I witnessed when I got home yesterday afternoon. Today, I'm going to continue that as I try to uh, see how I'm going to secure some sort of living for myself. But the community has been devastated by this. Uh, our flooding was not a result of the rains. Uh, which is what caused the deaths up in the Northeast. Our flooding was due to Lake Pontchartrain and the fact that we had no protection from that lake. And it blew that lake right over into those predominantly black communities. Uh, these people had not been uh, 
uh, adequately forewarned. They should never have been left there. There was no official mandatory evacuation issue. And I think that is, that was a, we were so fortunate that those people did not drown back there. But, right. And, uh, well, you know, I, I do have I want you to finish your point. But also, why no protection from the lake? I mean, so much in the media have covered about how New Orleans was protected and the levees held all of the money that they poured into it. But then you have communities um, like uh, St. John the Baptist community um, being devastated in this way. Your thoughts? Well, this goes all the way back to a hurricane a few years back. I think it was Isaac. For the first time, the people in in uh, St. John and the Laplace and Reserve area suffered serious flooding, and it was as a result of the Katrina event, which caused New Orleans to build protection, uh, Jefferson Parish, predominantly white, to build protection, St. Charles Parish built a levee. It was St. John Parish that did not have the levees, and that's why we got that flooding. President Obama addressed that. Uh, just like uh, uh, his predecessor here now, Biden, who came, he came and he walked the same areas years ago after Isaac, and he allocated three-quarters of a billion of dollars, as I recall, to build a protective, some levee protection there. They just had was barely getting started on it. But there was money allocated to protect those neighborhoods from exactly what happened this at this event happened during Isaac. Isaac was three or four years ago, I don't remember. But it was too fresh in the memories of people for us to have been caught the way we were with all of these people trapped back there and those floodwaters rushing in on them and trapping them. We had forewarning. Not only had we had the experience before, but the, the meteorologist report, the weather reports all indicated that they were, that exactly what happened. That lake was gonna get pushed back over back over into those communities and uh flood those poor people out. Yeah, and, and you know, um, Robert Taylor, who's the founder of Concerned uh, Citizens of uh, St. John, a community uh, in Louisiana, very hard hit uh, by a series of hurricanes, the most recent uh, being uh, Ida. Now, St. John, a predominantly black community, um, a, a very polluted uh, area known as, as Cancer Alley, because of the several industrial plants uh, it is home to and the clusters of cancer uh, patients. But also the news is just beginning uh, to trickle out, uh, Robert, about hundreds of oil and chemical spills that have been reported in um, the Louisiana uh, waters. And, uh, you know, one has to wonder if we'll ever really find out 
how many spills and the impact. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about the fact that your community already uh, being so polluted and now facing this particular crisis and uh, some of the things that you think people can do uh, to assist you and others in your community in your struggle for justice and to assist those who are suffering right now. Robert Taylor. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, yes, I mean, it actually is terrifying. Uh, I live in a community uh, uh, of low-income to middle-income people. The, the, it's a black community, and they built years ago, decades ago, we built that, that community built a, a church for themselves, a Catholic church. It was the only black Catholic diocese or parish. Uh, we built our homes. We built a public high school. But this plant came in and moved in, and it started operation in 1969. We were not aware of it at all, the fact that all of the whites that moved out, we sort of attributed that to white flight from the integration thing. But that really was fired by the fact that we think they were aware of the coming impact of that plant sitting right in the heart of our community, only 1,500 feet from these two schools, these two black schools, right in the heart of this black community. And evidence of what, what really fired my uh, uh, movement, the people in our community when they were given an opportunity to stand up, when I founded these groups, the people flocked to it because they found out from EPA that the, the suffering that we have been enduring, not really knowing for sure what it was, EPA gave us uh, information. One shocking thing was that we were, we were at a cancer risk that was 1,500 times the national average. The national average being 0.9. We were 1,500 times that, according to EPA, because of our exposure to the chemicals from DuPont Danker, primarily chloroprene. No one to this day has done anything to curb the exposure from that plant. We fought and fought. EPA issued some uh, level of an acceptable level, they say, of chloroprene for humans at 0.2 micrograms per liter. Well, the elementary school that is only 1,500 feet from that plant was receiving exposure rates 400 to 700 times that recommended EPA level. The elementary school children, the people who live in that community, the people in the surrounding community, we were informed by our government agency, EPA, that there was no place in St. John the Baptist Parish that had a safe level of chloroprene exposure. Now, why it had, they informed us of this in 2016. We are now going into 2022 that plant has not been ordered demanded 
Uh, I mean, it's why is the government allowing them to continue to kill these poor black people? Good, a good question there, Robert uh, Taylor. I'm afraid we, we are uh, short of time. We have to uh, move on to wrap up our last segment in the show. But Robert, what we'll do, because I, I'm so outraged by what you're saying and, and, and what I'm hearing, and we want to be useful in some way, uh, Robert Taylor. If you will send us the information, we will be posting on our social media how people can be in touch with concerned citizens of, of St. John and what they can do now following Ida, but also about this ongoing uh, problem uh, that you have with your community being so polluted. And we'll have you back where we can have a bit more time to discuss this. But uh, we are going to have to end it there. So Robert Taylor, thank you so very much uh, for joining us and we'll be in touch with you. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. All the best. Okay. And uh, we are now going to wrap up our show again, uh, focusing on the environment, um, uh, uh, really a continuation of uh, what we've been calling an urban-rural conversation here on Sojourner Truth. So important. The deserts of California have unique ecosystems and habitats, as well as a collection of historic districts and uh, communities. There are three main deserts in California the Mojave, the Colorado, and the Great Basin Desert. Scientists have also pointed out that there's a massive aquifer that lies beneath the Mojave Desert. And unfortunately, in recent years, with shrinking government funds for environmental protection and the impact of climate climate change, there are increased threats to the conservation and preservation of the desert, and some coming uh, from a surprising uh, area. Um, I'd like to welcome our guest, Pat Flanagan, a naturalist educator based in 29 Palms, California, in her current position as desert naturalist at the 29 Palms Inn, located on the oasis of Mata. She educates an international audience on desert ecology and the natural and human history of the oasis of Mata, uh, which has been around for at least uh, 9,000 years. She is a board member of the Morongo Basin Conservation Association. She advocates for a healthy, undisturbed desert and in 2017, she was awarded the Minerva Hoyt California Desert Conservation Award by the Joshua Tree National Park Association. Pat Flanagan, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Margaret. Okay, so, so Pat, we, there's a lot we have to unpack here. Clearly, this is just the beginning of this discussion. Uh, so tell us now, um, first off, about the threats to the water table, because I'm looking at an article that says the next great water war is starting underground in the Mojave Desert. What are some of the immediate threats now to the water? Well, one of the immediate threats would be the um, proliferation of illegal marijuana grows throughout the desert. I just um, was given permission to quote from a recently completed and soon to be published analysis that found over 2,000 um, cannabis cultivation sites in the desert in San Bernardino County. And that includes thousands of intact acres that have been stripped uh, for these sites. And if you were to look at, like, go to YouTube and look at the illegal marijuana cultivation problem in 29 Palms, California, 
you could see that these grows are essentially scraping intact desert. And when they do that, they interfere with all of the life that's going on both above and below ground. And they, um, in order to grow the plants, they use some really nasty uh, fertilizers and pesticides, such as carbofuran and zinc phosphates, which uh, are illegal uh, under UPA to use here. And even if the water is, it would take quite a long time for the water table to be poisoned by this, but the animals that live on the surface uh, have a lot of problems. And in fact, one drop of the carbofuran will kill a bird. And uh, so these are, these are very serious problems. Yeah. And, and um, okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, just, you know, you and others have been working so hard in terms of uh, making the point of preserving the desert. And I know a lot of our listeners out there who may use uh, products uh, from marijuana, either smoking it or eating it or uh, uh, in, in other ways, but may not realize the heavy chemical use um, to grow uh, some of these plants. I mean, this isn't like uh, organic uh, fields, but also, uh, you know, there, there is a proposal now for a billionaire who wants to build a futuristic city uh, in the desert. Now, we're not sure, maybe Arizona, maybe the Utah desert, but who knows, maybe uh, the California uh, desert. So tell us what are some of the problems, because on the one hand, it's people are saying it's good to see, you know, development, business, etc the desert but on the other hand the the ecosystem of the desert is really valuable for all of us we hear about the rainforests right and its value to the environment but we don't hear a heck of a lot about the desert uh just some final thoughts from you uh pat flanagan and we're we're definitely there's a number of us that have been working very hard to get um the government in sacramento to understand that there is data to show that the desert and which the desert actually equals equals 27% of the state, and it may hold 10% of the sequestered carbon. And the interesting thing is, unlike in trees, which when they burn down or whatever, lose their carbon into the atmosphere, uh, this carbon is stored underground. And if you leave the carbon alone, it'll stay there. If you disturb the above ground, for one thing, you stop sequestering when there is uh, water available, and you can also break apart um, the sequestered, uh, the biological has become part of a rock called caliche, calcium carbonate. If you break that up, then it will, um, the car calcium carbonate will go up into the atmosphere. So this is a really serious need um, by California in their, they want to preserve by 2030, 30% of the coast and and land for carbon sequestration and biodiversity. The desert is huge. Since we have, yeah. uh, for instance, if we have 28% of the state, we have 38% of the native plants. When you have problems like the marijuana grows or you have industrial solar going across um, prime land that has never been scraped, you are disturbing and getting rid of the value of the desert to the people who live not only in the state, but the country. 
Absolutely. You know, Pat Flanagan, I certainly have participated in a workshop that you did over at the 29 Palms Inn. You're so full of information. We're going to need to have you back. And in fact, I think we need a full hour to discuss some of these topics because we are out of time now, uh, Pat. So will you join us again and uh, have a more in-depth discussion about the threat to the desert and preserving the desert environment and its importance? Thank you for joining us, Pat. And thank you for All asking, right. and I'll for sure join you in the future. All righty. We are out of time. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Federico Garcia, our engineer, and our sister producer, Romero Funes. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.